questions ready. We're going to have Wayne Allen in there, years of experience, and Dr. Mike Hayes. So get ready and uh, have that ready. Uh, this is a great man of God. Would you do me a favor? Would you please, if your expectation's on three, bump it to six. If it's on six, bump it to nine. There's something about putting a draw and a demand on the anointing that's in the room. And I can tell you, just, just hanging out with this guy in a car wherever we're at. I, 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 and by the way, he's taking another trip. I'm going with him to Israel. You, if you cannot all be on that trip and you want a life change December 1st, I think we got a few positions open. But rolling around to where David's mighty men were, and Giddy, to the Galilee, to the Beatitudes where he taught. Some of you were there. And the anointing Bob that was at, at the Beatitudes with 100 people, and he was teaching, the anointing fell on him. And uh, it, it changed my life, and everyone's in the room. But would you guys give it up for one of my fathers in the faith, Dr. Mike Hayes. Let's go. God bless you guys. You can be seated. Thank you so much for your kindness. Something really, someone really powerful in this room. Enjoyed the testimonies, Nick. Proud of you. You're raising up men of God. Both of these guys, I mean, I that especially that last guy, if I if I was in that kind of deal and in a bar fight, I'd want him with me. That that guy's a piece of work. Good job, man. I enjoyed your stories. Listen, guys, you better get adept. You better have an elevator pitch version of your story because that's unique to you. The Apostle Paul, every time he moved among a new people group, he was the most educated of any of the apostles, but he started the same place. I was on a road to Damascus, and a light from heaven struck me down. That was his story, and he told it everywhere. Tell your story. It'll, uh, it will free someone. I appreciate you guys that are here. I, I, I trust you today, and I mentioned to Pastor Buck that I want to go into some things today that I believe have the potential to change our lives. I know it has changed mine. The Scripture says that the men of Issachar understood the times and knew what Israel ought to do. And that's a challenge we have right now is we don't have enough in ministry, frankly, and I'm talking about my cohorts, and I respect them. They don't know what we ought to do because they don't know the times, and they don't know where we're going. And there's massive confusion, even division, about a word I'm going to share with you this morning about eschatology. Eschatology is a theological word that means the understanding or study of last things eschatology. Where are we going from here? In about uh, 19, early 1970s, a book was written by a gentleman called The Late Great Planet Earth. And it's, uh, it sold 90 million copies, I think, in the first year, and it influenced theology for the evangelical church. And the message of the eschatology of that book was the destruction of everything. Somewhere between the Russians and nuclear wars and the earth was going to be blown to hell and some of us were going to go to heaven and most were going to go to hell and nothing good was coming and you better get ready. Then 
there was a series written. I'm not calling these guys' names on purpose because I don't want the attention to the name. I'm talking about the, the misinterpretation, in my opinion, because I believe, and I'll tell you straight up front, I believe in a totally victorious eschatology. I, am, I was on Patmos, and I'll tell you about that visit. It was life-changing for me. The island where John wrote the book of Revelation, I went and spent hours in the cave where he was when he wrote that. I was able now to say something that was kind of on my bucket list. John wrote, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. He wrote that from that cave. And I was in that cave on the Lord's day. And I said, I'm in the spirit on the Lord's day from the cave where he said that. Pretty powerful. Some things happened there, but we are about, when I say we, my writing partner and my covenant brother, who's one of the brilliant men I know, Dr. Jeff Garner, he pastors a church in downtown San Francisco. He is a double PhD in early church history, and he was on Patmos with me, and our book coming out, when I call it our book, he helped me with research on the book coming out in December called Real Happy. It's written on the Beatitudes. Pastor Buck was there the day the Lord gave me the mandate to write that book. And it was six years ago, and I had no idea that God was going to call me to write a book on happiness, and then I was going to walk through five years of hell. When I preach at Covenant Church now at home, I am amazed and blessed at the strength. And that's what I see for you guys' churches, the strength that a church can have when people know what it means to circle the wagons and stand together. So COVID in the last five years was one of the small issues that we had at Covenant. Uh, five years ago, well, in 2016, now seven years ago, eight almost, uh, I turned the church to uh, my son, Stephen, the younger generation. I'd finished 40 years and I moved more into my apostolic work with pastors and all. And uh, Stephen was doing great for three years and then um, wasn't processing pressure properly, uh, as I explained to you last night, and he hit a wall and had a breakdown. He resigned. He has since lost his marriage. Uh, he went through addiction time, and Stephen's uh, coming back and back on his feet and doing better, in my opinion, than he was before. You know, a lot of times... We don't know. See, any garden hose laying in the yard with no pressure looks like a good one till you turn the pressure on and then it's spraying water everywhere. You don't know where the fault lines are until you get under a certain kind of pressure. My daughter, meanwhile, had come up with her second uh, breast cancer episode and this time stage four. So I have a son who's lost everything he has and I'm trying to keep him alive and my daughter was stage four cancer and so she goes into treatment and we're praying and believing God and confessing her healing so I install one of my sons in the gospel Ricky Tejada that was just the best and uh, Ricky gets COVID and dies in 10 days he called me literally from the hospital, and he said, Pastor Mike, they tell me I have COVID. I'm not even sick. I'm doing my work from up here in my room. Five days later, he was on a breathing machine, and a week later, he was dead. I'm telling you that the church, and so then I'm like, where am I, God? And 
I had friends, well-meaning friends, wise friends in ministry saying, Mike, you have to step back in. You have to take back over as the pastor. And I said, I would do that in a minute, but you can't go backwards. And that's not what God's saying. He has a plan. So God began to heal my daughter, Amy. Amy's always been an amazing speaker and revelator, but she wasn't, in my mind, she wasn't a leader in a sense that back in the day when I was pastoring, she'd be in pastor's meetings and she'd be thinking about something or doodling. She wasn't an administrator. She was, But God was healing her. And she came to me after Ricky passed and said, Dad, I know you may have concerns about my health, but God has healed me. I'm going to be fine. And God has graced me for this season. If you trust me, I can lead this church. And we set Amy in as the first woman pastor of a mega church in America. And Amy is killing it. The church is stronger than it's ever been. Amy is leading. Amy's changing, moving, selling, buying. They're looking at a campus right now up in the north in the new growth zone that aged out and COVID kind of killed them. They have a $30 million campus with 100 people left, and Amy's negotiating on it for $13 million. You couldn't build it for 50. And she's leading. And the church is stronger than I've ever seen it. I'm telling you, guys, I want to encourage you in something. Grace Life and our other pastors here, if you will teach people real covenant and live real covenant, people that know how to circle the wagons and stand for one another when you go through stuff, because I'm going to tell you something. Jesus loves us all, but Jesus also said, in the world you will have tribulation. You will have trouble because there is a real devil that wants to shut us down. You can survive anything if you know how to stand together. I encourage you in that. I'm going to make several comments today that, and I want to, I want to, I want to make a disclaimer here first. I shared with Pastor Buck that I wanted to go into some things and teach some things today, and my disclaimer is this, and I mean this seriously. I could say this like it was a tongue-in-cheek, a joke. I mean this seriously. For the last two and a half years, God has had me in a place of studying last things in eschatology. And then my trip to Patmos was almost a culmination and everything is not ready yet, but enough is ready to start serving, putting food on the table. I want to get you to think today. I'm not going to ask you to set in stone everything that I'm going to tell you and my interpretation of what I believe I'm reading that to me I've never been more sure about or more clear about. But my disclaimer is if anything that I share doesn't agree with what your pastor teaches about where we're going or whatever, then he's right and I'm wrong. You follow your pastor. But I want to share with you the Word of God, and I'm going to try my best not to share any of my personal opinions because mine don't matter. My personal opinions do not matter about what I interpret something to say. I believe the best we can do is let the Bible speak for itself. What Jesus said, then say what Jesus said. So we've gotten in a bad place in the body of Christ about where we're going because we're torn. 
And the reason we're torn is because, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make an analogy here. Okay, any one of you, me, we have a house. We talk to our wife and we decide we're going to sell it. We're going to sell this house. We'd like to move somewhere else, better, bigger and better. We're going to sell this house. So you put it on the market. It's getting good attention. You sit down at dinner and your wife says to you, listen, hon, what I'd like to do is I've been thinking about tearing out this room and if we could add a new den there and a swimming pool and you're like, why? Why? It's for sale. I don't want to build all that. Why would we do that? I don't mind painting the living room or fixing the commode, but why would we add rooms and a pool? It's going to, it's going to be sold in 30 days. My analogy is this. We, we, have a, we have a disconnect going on. We gather 250 mighty men like this, but we're not given a clear signal about what, what is this war about? Why are we going to do anything to try to change the world other than maybe take a few people to heaven? And that's wonderful. But it's all about to be destroyed. So what do we want to add on to it for? Jesus is coming back any minute. Why are we trying to expand our churches? Why would we take on the debt? Why do we need the pressure? Why would we want to ever make long-term plans with a short-term prophecy? Now, this is not a new doctrine. It's new, relatively speaking, the new, the, and I'm talking about the imminent return doctrine of Jesus coming in a minute is new in that it's, it started in the 1850s. The early historic church in the first centuries never taught that. In the 1850s, a lady that taught Sunday school in Scotland, I'm sure she was a great lady, got a revelation about that, and then it went from there, and then we're leaving any minute. Now, I was raised by parents who didn't go to church until I was two years old. They didn't know the Lord. So when they got saved, the church that they got saved in uh, was, was, was that kind of church. So that church discouraged uh, higher education. That church taught, don't go to college. It's not going to do anything. What would you go to college for? We're all going in the rapture. Why would you buy a house? Just rent something short term. Now watch this. Follow this. John Osteen was one of our great mentors that's in heaven now, Joel's dad. I lived in Houston, and I knew him well, respect him highly. The closest John Osteen ever came to having a church split was when he built a new building. He had an old building with a ceiling about eight or nine feet tall, seated 5,000, and they had to have big old TVs hanging everywhere for the people in the back to see. The ceiling was so low. So they had, so he built a new building my gosh, you would have thought by the way people criticized him, it was the Taj Mahal. It was a metal building, but it had a high ceiling and about 10 columns out front with some flags, and he almost had a total church split because the doctrine of we're leaving any minute, we don't believe in buildings, we don't even want to, the charismatic thing with the Holy Spirit, we don't want buildings. Buildings are bad because they'd been thrown out of their, what they called uh, stained glass cathedrals, because they got the Holy Spirit, so they had an anti-building bias. We don't want to own a church. So the result of that bad doctrine is that the body of Christ wasted hundreds of millions of dollars across the nation renting and leasing what they should have bought. 
Because here's the problem. We're still here. And tens of thousands of churches own no property. How is that good? Listen, guys, bad doctrines always lead to bad outcomes. So, let's look at this and see, because do, and here's my question. I got a couple of, several questions for you that are going to be pretty probing. One question the Holy Spirit was talking to me last night as Pastor Buck ministered. And by the way, I want to straighten something out lest you misunderstand because I admire and love this man's methodology, whatever that is, because I made the comment he's all over the map. I love that about him because I got about 10 sermon ideas last night and he's full of the word of God and faith and he encourages me. I love that. And when you get in a creative environment where the rhema of God is speaking, then he speaks things to you. This is somewhat from Patmos, and it was brought to my mind last night. I want to ask you a question. Does the Lord you worship hang on a cross or sit on a throne? Because that will determine much about your eschatology. When I was in uh, Athens, before we, after we went to Patmos, sorry, Portugal, uh, Kathy and I went to a, see a beautiful church, and they had a little service going that morning, and we went in and sat in the back. I'm respectful of every kind of church that preaches Jesus. There was not a preaching. It was a little prayer chapel, beautiful, from three or 400 years ago. Cool name, too. It's in Portuguese. But the name of the church is Bomb Jesus. <laughs> now they pronounce it Bo Jesu, and Bomb in Portuguese is good. So the name of the church is Good Jesus. But I bought I bought their book, Bomb Jesus. <laughs> that is that's an awesome church name. But I watched sincere people in that church. They had as, a, as an art piece, I suppose it's, it was beautiful, but it was, it was gory. It was gilded, but it was Jesus hanging on a cross dead. And the feet were worn off from almost from 300 years of people kissing the feet. So you come in, you look at dead Jesus, you say a prayer, you kiss his feet, and you leave to go try to make your life work. Now, some of the things I'm going to say, and some of you have Catholic background, Catholic church and they're not the only ones the other orthodox there are other orthodox churches that use crucifixes i would encourage you and i'm not making this a law you pray about it i wouldn't wear a crucifix if i were you cross is great but the cross is empty i believe the devil wants to perpetrate the message of a dead jesus hanging on a cross he's dead he lost. He's defeated. He loved you so much, this is what he did. Go kiss his feet. Then go try to figure out how to make your life work because he's dead. Here's the gospel to me. The gospel is not just Jesus died. If you interviewed 10,000 Christians across America after church tomorrow, say, what is the gospel? They'd say, Jesus died for our sins so we could go to heaven. That's a small part of the gospel. I can't underestimate the importance of his death on a cross, but here is the gospel. The full gospel is this. 
Jesus is the only Son of God born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, died on a cross, three days later resurrected from a tomb, 40 days later ascended to the heavens, was seated in a throne in glory at the right hand of the Father, and rules making righteous judgment over the earth with us as his ambassadors and is returning for final resurrection and judgment and setting up the eternal kingdom. That's the gospel. So if, you're, if your view of the Lord you serve is a dead Jesus hanging on a cross, I want to move you forward in this men's retreat to an enthroned Jesus who's making judgments. Daniel said he's making judgments in favor of the saints. Boom, do that. Give them that. Afford that. Marry them. Do that. He's, his judgments are not, you're bad. His judgments are, give that church that property. Give that man that raise. Let that couple start that company. Boom. Bless them with that. Bomb Jesus. Now, if you, if you can adjust your vision, I'm challenging you to adjust your vision to an enthroned Lord and not a dead Jesus. Dead Jesus hasn't helped us. So with that in mind, I went to Patmos and I went to the cave and I'd been studying these things for a couple of years I want to go with you to Matthew chapter 23 and 24, and we're going to look at a few things here. And if what I share with you makes sense to you that it it is what Jesus said, and we have mistranslated that, miscommunicated that, and now we find ourselves, as we say in Israel, in a belagon. A belagon in Yiddish in Israel means a total mess. If, if your tour bus is stuck in traffic with 50 other buses jammed up in there, that's a belagon. We have created a prophetic belagon because we don't know what to do. Are we getting out of here or are we supposed to occupy? Are we supposed to fight darkness or are we supposed to get our rapture robe on? We don't know what to do. Are we supposed to go to college or not? Why go to college if we're leaving any minute? Why add a room onto the house if it's going to sell in 30 days? I'm confused if that's where we're at. But we're not, and I'm not confused. And I want to share with you Jesus' teaching. How many of you understand that a man shares, I thought that was beautiful, Buck, and I wish I'd have known your dad. Uh, You're telling his, he'd arranged his tithe and, his last things. How many of you understand that the last words that a man says are important words? That's not time for trivial talk. What I'm going to share with you in Matthew 23 and 24 is Jesus' last words, hours, really about two days. His first ones were a week before he died. The last part of the message was two days before he was crucified. So this is, not, this is not idle talk. Not that Jesus ever talked idly, but this is not light stuff. This is like, okay, I'm getting ready to go for it. This is what you have to know. Now, I will tell you that as we go into this, and I want you to find yourself, I want you to locate yourself, there are two schools of thought about prophecy. Futurists 
and historicists or historic believers. Futurist, which is what most of current evangelical Christianity is, is that all the big events are about to happen in the future. Antichrist, great tribulation, coming of the Lord, marriage supper of the Lamb, rapture of the church, everything is future. Then the other school of thought is that there are some of those things that are historic, already happened, not future, and let's locate ourselves, where, where are we? What is future yet to come and what has already happened? Because you can't sort out where you are if you're looking for something that's already been and it's a misdirect. I think we have disempowered millions of Christians with occupational kingdom strategy and purpose by teaching them that there is no worldly purpose. Just come to church to be spiritual. Stay out of the world. Everything in the world is worldly. Don't get in business. Don't occupy. Don't be an actor. Hollywood's full of the devil. Don't be an influence. Stay out of government. Don't talk about politics. Disengage because we're just little old us and we're leaving here any minute. I hate that because it has cost us so much. So in Matthew 23, verse 37 and 39, and understand that when the Bible was written, when this was preached and taught by Jesus, there weren't chapter delineations. So Matthew 23 and 24 shouldn't be separated. It's the same conversation. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Jesus prays, the one who kills the prophets, notice this now, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you, and that word house is the temple. Your house is left to you desolate, for I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That was one week before his crucifixion. He weeps over Jerusalem, and I want you to know what he says about it. Jerusalem, that's why the Old Testament prophets called Jerusalem Babylon. That's why they called Jerusalem the great whore, because Jerusalem was the, the, the religious system in Jerusalem that was false, was the killer of every voice God ever sent them. And it was going to culminate in them killing Jesus a week from him saying this. And they're going to pay for that. And they have paid for that. I'll explain. But as we move to two days before his crucifixion, Jesus went out and departed from the temple. And his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. Now, as Pastor Buck and those of you who have been there to Israel know, when you sit across the Kidron Valley on Mount of Olives and you look back at Jerusalem where the Mosque of Omar is now, which is the uh, a Muslim mosque with the gold dome. Uh, that's where the temple sat. It was the most imposing, largest structure, one of the wonders of the world that had ever been seen. And 
it was amazing and, and structurally, and it was the control center of all of Jerusalem, politically, financially, every way, and it was as corrupt as could be, and the Spirit of God hadn't touched that place in 400 years. But religion does just fine without the Spirit of God. So what we're asking you to be involved with is not religion. It's relationship with Jesus. So Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and the disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. In other words, their mindset was, Jesus, you're talking about a lot of big things we're supposed to do, but look at this, what we're up against. We're a small band of ignorant boys from up north in Galilee, country boys, and we're supposed to compete with this environment? Look at this place. And that's all you could see, biggest structure in Jerusalem. They were, they were awed by that. Watch this now. And Jesus said to them, do you not see these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone here shall be left upon another that will not be thrown down. Now, that's a big prophecy when you're looking at the temple. Now comes what we call the Olivet or Mount of Olives discourse, which is the greatest message along with the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus ever preached. Every word means something. Can we go through this quickly and, and, and break it down? Are you guys with me today? I, I really do sense that you are. I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to make an agreement with you because I'm pretty sensitive to this. I've been doing this a while. If I lose you and the greater part of the audience is not with me and not listening, then I'm going to find an off-ramp and we'll quit. We'll pray and we'll do something else. But if you're with me, I, I want to take you on a journey here, and I want to see what you think, okay? So now as he sat down, now see, he's going to respond to what the disciples are feeling. They're feeling intimidated. They're feeling like, how are we ever going to be anything important? Just like we've all felt. So as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? Guys, I'm going to let Jesus do the talking, let the disciples do the asking, but let's stay. You don't have to have a Ph.D. in eschatology to understand this. We're going to say just what Jesus said, and I want to see what you think about it, and am I putting some private interpretation on it? Because I don't have any ax to grind. I'm not selling a book about this yet. <laughs> it's going to be after Real Happy, and the next one I'm writing is called Real Hope because the world doesn't have hope because we've screwed most of it up. We're going away any minute and you're not going. <laughs> Tell us when shall these things be. Now watch this. This is very important. The disciples are going to get kind of out over their skis and they're going to ask basically three questions in one. And we're going to answer all three of them because Jesus answers all three of them. Tell us. When will these things be? That's the destruction of the temple that he just prophesied. That's the first question. And what will be the sign of your coming? Number two. And number three, and what will be and the sign of your coming? And number three, and the end of the age. And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you. Must be an opportunity to be deceived. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. 
And you, now here's what, one of the things I want you to notice, and if you'd like to keep count, I'm kind of a list maker. You know how you do four and then across through it is five? If you want to make count as I read through this, just make count about how many times Jesus uses the word you. And then answer this question for me. How have we applied this to us 2,000 years later when he was talking to 12 men looking at him with anxious big eyes saying, when will this be? And he uses the term you over 20 times and somehow that came to mean us. How would you feel if you sat down in a conversation and conversationally you're talking about a life issue with you and your family and you're going to have a barbecue, but you keep, but you're, the people you're talking to, you keep using the term they. But you know, listen, when they come over, they can bring whatever car they want and they can bring some meat if they want to and they can, we can, uh, they can have a fire and, we, and you'd be like, who are you talking about? When you do that, you say, listen, you come over, bring your wife and kids, we'll have a fire, you bring some meat if you want. You're, you, you use the term you for those you're talking to, not people to come 2,000 years from now. That's not who Jesus was talking to. So just pay attention to the yous in this verse. For many will come in my name saying I'm the Christ and will deceive many, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. So wars and rumors of wars were prophesied, and the period that I'm speaking about today had more wars and rumors of wars than any era in history. I could go into that for you, but we'll move on. Verse 7. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilence, earthquakes in various places. They will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake and then many will be offended and will betray one another and will hate one another <clears throat> then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many and because lawlessness will abound the love of many will grow cold and he who endures to the end the end of what the end of this age that he's speaking of shall be saved saved from what was old and now has become new and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all nations, and then the end will come. The end of what? It's translated by futurists as the end of the world. Jesus didn't say the end of the world. The first term he applied the end to is the age. What age are we talking about? We're talking about the age of the prophets and the law. We're not and the coming of the new covenant and the gospel. We're not talking about the end of the, of the, of the world. The world is cosmos. The end of the world is not what he said. The end of the age, what you've lived, the system in place and the killer of the prophets, that's coming to an end. God's going to judge that. Now let's move forward. Everybody with me? Verse 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, who sees it? You. He said, you that I'm talking to. When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea, that's in Israel, flee to the mountains. 
Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. Let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in the winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. Unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Why did he include that? Because that was one of the questions. What will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Remember the three questions? When will these things be, which is what? The destruction of the temple. What is the sign of your coming? Notice he didn't say your coming, the sign of your coming, and what will be the sign of the end of the age? Not of the world, of the age. What is the sign? So what Jesus describes here is an attack so rapid that's going to come upon Jerusalem that you can't even have time to pack your clothes if you're caught up in it. Okay? And it's going to involve the destruction of the temple. And it's to them. The instruction is to them. I got some really good news for you about how they believed this and they believed the book of Revelation and they were saved from that destruction. Really encouraging. I'm going to add this place because it's new in my information now. I'm going to go there. Hopefully, Buck, you and I can get a helicopter or something. We're going to go there in December to a place called Pella. I haven't been before, but I'm going to tell you why we want to go there. Now, I'm going to throw something in here. Here again, I told you I was going to get you to think. The term the great tribulation has to do with last day prophecy and the seven years and all that. There is no such term in the Bible as the great tribulation. The term we just read, Jesus said there will be great tribulation such as the world has not seen. That's where we get the term great tribulation. But it is not designated by Jesus as the great tribulation. It's great tribulation. Why is that important? Because are we waiting on the great tribulation and that's still in the future? And then we leave it to religion. So we break that down and we argue, okay, is Jesus coming before the seven years, in the middle of the seven years, at the end of the seven years? Because there's seven years of the great tribulation. That goes on the same list. I'm really, I love you guys' attentiveness. I really do. That goes on the same list I'm building with terms like the Antichrist. That term doesn't exist in the Bible. The spirit of Antichrist is what the Bible says. It doesn't identify it as a man, Antichrist. It's the spirit of Antichrist. So we argue about, is that my God? We've had it in my lifetime. Everybody from Henry Kissinger to Nixon to Hitler to, well, a lot of them were Antichrist. Uh, Putin right now is Antichrist, but he's not the Antichrist. I can explain to you, and if you want to go into it on your own, you can study this out. It's very clear in my mind in biblical prophecy. What we're talking about is the beast, not the Antichrist. And the beast 
was clearly defined, and I'll share that with you in a minute because we know from Revelation who the beast was. And I say was because that's past tense. I won't uh, keep you hanging on a cliff. The beast was Nero. And John wrote in cryptic language and used numbers like the 666 because Nero was currently, when he wrote the Revelation, he was the Caesar in charge of Rome and ruling over Israel and wanted to crush them all like a bug. Nero was the beast of Revelation. His name in Hebrew, remember last night I told you the new Hebrew year? His name equals 666. When you break down the Hebrew name, his name totals 666. And there's no, Nero was one of the worst human beings that ever lived. And he was the one the early church and the apostles had to contend with. Nero kicked his own pregnant wife to death. Nero had his mother murdered and dismembered. Nero killed those of his own government and household. Nero was so demonized that he actually played games. He had a beautiful Roman gardens. And he had a custom made, this sounds so bizarre, it's hard to believe it's true, but it's true. It's historic. It's there. He had a custom-made outfit that looked like a, it was actual tiger skins, and it looked like a tiger. And he would put on this tiger skin and crawl on all fours and go out in this garden, and he would scare people coming through the garden, and he'd have a couple of thugs with him, and they would capture them, and Nero, they would take a knife and cut off their genitals, and Nero would in his act like a tiger eat them and eat their parts this this was this was one of the most despotic men that ever lived and he was the beast the beast out of the sea the bible describes i'm getting too deep here guys but the bible describes two beasts one of them's out of the sea and one of them's a beast from the land let me tell you who those two beasts were that john had in mind the beast from the sea is if you stand on the shores of Caesarea and look northwest, you're looking toward Rome. That beast came from the sea. That's Nero and his army that destroyed Jerusalem ultimately. The beast from the land was the beast that sat on top of the Temple Mount and controlled the religious and the finance and the elitist of Israel and crucified Jesus. You know why? I'm going to cut to the chase here on this point. You know why Jerusalem was totally destroyed in 70 A.D.? Not just because Jesus prophesied it, but because they killed Jesus. That system killed Jesus, and they paid for it. Do you really think, see, that generation we're talking about, Buck, I'm going to put something in perspective that blew my mind recently. I started Covenant Church in 1976. I turned it over to the next generation in 2016. That's 40 years. Everything I'm describing to you that happened, happened in 40 years in that generation. Jesus prophesied it in 30 A.D., and in 70 A.D., Rome was in, came in from the north and totally destroyed Jerusalem. And Jesus said, this generation will not pass away till all these things are fulfilled. Now, here's where the rub comes. The reason we got it all screwed up is because Jesus' words didn't seem to be obvious enough, so we've made our generation, we're so narcissistic, we made our generation the this generation that he was talking about. He uses the term, 
Listen, in this chapter, if you read, read please reread it when you go home. He's going to use the term you more than 20 times. Four times repeatedly, but he's going to use four different terms that apparently don't mean what Jesus meant them to mean. He used the term near, at hand, at the door, soon, near, at hand, at the door, soon. But he didn't mean that. He meant 2,000 years from now all this is going to happen. He didn't mean soon. He didn't mean it was at the door. He didn't mean that. He meant 2,000 years from now, there's a generation coming. 30 A.D. it started, 70 A.D. it finished. 40 years is a recognized generation. Now, you know what some of the futurist teachers have done? They keep expanding a generation. When I was growing up, at least they admitted that it was 40 years, and it started, watch this now, by their time clock, it started in 1948, when the geopolitical nation of Israel re-raised the Israeli flag. That's when the generation started. What did that mean then? That meant that we had till 1988. That's why there was rapture fever in 1987. That's why a guy named, uh, I forget his name right now, wrote, wrote a book, 88 Reasons Jesus Will Come in 88. He sold so many to gullible Christians, he bought a yacht and went to the Bahamas. I was a young, foolish preacher in 88 that was 12 years into building Covenant Church, and I stood and boldly proclaimed. My sister-in-law was our worship leader, Kathy's sister. It's the only time I saw her get really angry at me, but she was a sincere believer, and I stood and boldly proclaimed, this man is a false prophet. Jesus is not coming back in 88, and the premise of the book is wrong. Mike, she said, you better be careful. What if he's right? I said, if he's right, then I'm going to heaven because I'm saved anyway. But he's not right, and it's getting us all off course. You know what he did? He was so brazen that when Jesus didn't come in 88, as we knew, as I thought he would not, he wrote, a re he wrote 89 reasons he's coming in 89. And he was an engineer. He was not a pastor. He was an engineer, and he said, I was off by one year in my calculation Sold 300,000 of those books. I didn't buy either one, by the way. Why was that important? Because 40 years was recognized as a generation. So if 1948 is the beginning of the time clock, it has to be over in 88 because Jesus said this generation will not pass till all this is fulfilled. Well, when we got past 88, then the future has had a problem. It's like, what do we do now? Easy. Just adjust it. Because actually we were off a little. A generation is actually 80 years. Now they've changed it to 100. But, but guys, listen, it's not that they're bad guys, but they're absolutely misguided and off, and it's wrong. And here's what I don't understand. And some of these guys are my friends. I'm not going to call their names, but I would tell them in private conversation. The Bible says to be set for the defense of the gospel. I'm getting myself set to talk to some of these guys. And I want to have, I'm asking the Lord to give me a face-to-face -face opportunity to talk with them. You can't, how can you write a book on the blood moons and that the whole end of everything is going to happen and make a million dollars selling books on the blood moons and the freaking blood moon comes and goes and it's nothing but a thing in the heavens where there's an alignment of a couple of planets and nothing happens. But nobody gets their money back. And you shamelessly get on TV and sell your newest book. 
I guess it'll be the milky moon next. I don't know. The blood moon, the dark sun, negative eschatology cells. Victorious eschatology is, however, the truth. What we're going to redeem in our second book called Real Hope is the word apocalypse. This is a prime example of how we can rewrite the meaning of a word. Apocalypse has been turned into a word about destruction and nuclear war and monsters. My God, they've even got the zombie apocalypse coming. And the truth is, the Greek word apocalypse means to reveal a thing. What does John say he's revealing in the apocalyptic book? The revelation of Jesus Christ. How did we take something so beautiful as the total, absolute victory of Jesus over our enemies and turn it into a victory for the Russians and nuclear bombs? Absolutely false doctrine, in my opinion. And that's not, my opinion doesn't matter, but what does the word say? Now, I, I think that this is important for me to do because you know this verse uh, we quoted often about uh, from, from Joel, about in the last days, I'll pour out my spirit upon all flesh. What was the prophecy of Jesus about if you're on the housetop, don't try to come down. God help you if you're pregnant or if it's winter, it's going to be cold because this is how quick this invasion is going to come on you. Did you know that the same prophet and the same chapter about in the last days, I'll pour out my spirit in all flesh, saw that vision hundreds of years before Jesus said it and wrote it in the book of Joel. And if you understand, let me, let me share with you just a couple things about Roman conquest. <coughs> Rome was the most organized military juggernaut in world history. Rome is the first army that ever organized into, and you military men would understand how much you got from Rome. Uh, they understood uh, uh, levels of authority. They understood uh, formations. They understood organized war. Before then, it was just like guys running all over the place trying to hit people with something. And then the Romans came along, and here's what's interesting in history. The Romans, by actual history, were really small guys. In fact, when they started, archaeologists started digging up their swords, they used to call them daggers. They thought they were knives. They're about that long. But Romans were little guys. It was their sword. How did they win? How did they do what they did? Highly organized. This is the way they, they, they started trade guilds. Interesting for you guys doing business. Like my question to a guide one time that's an archaeologist in Israel is how did Herod, only lived to be 43 years old and without electricity or a power tool, built seven major palaces all over the Middle East, one of them hanging on the side of Masada, which is an engineering marvel. How did they do that? That quickly. And he said it's because of their plans and their organization because everybody in Rome, every family was assigned a purpose. So when they were going to build a palace, they simply went to the heads of families 
because your family are gate builders, your family is fence builders, your family builds ceiling trusses, your family does foundations, your family does gates, your family builds hinges, your family makes, and so all they do is have a meeting with everybody and say on this date we need 17 doors, 29 hinges, and then it all shows up on the job site and then about 10,000 slaves put it up. They were organized. Israel and their army and their ways, no one was prepared for what was going to come from Rome. That's why Jesus is saying, you have something coming on you that you have never seen. Now watch this. This is what gives me chill bumps. Joel saw it hundreds of years before. Now if you think about Titus, the Roman general who became a Caesar, coming down from the north from Rome to destroy Jerusalem, and Jesus prophesying how it would happen and how quickly the destruction would happen. Now, what if you weren't going back a thousand years, but this were a current event and a guy actually saw it like Josephus who saw it in person? Watch what, what, what Joel says and now put this in context and it makes so much sense. Blow the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. That's the temple. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming. That always means judgment. For it is at hand. A day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, like the morning clouds spread over the mountains. Note the word clouds. A people come great and strong, the like of whom is never seen, nor will there ever be such after them, even for many successive generations. A fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land, always, the reference to the land is always Israel. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them and behind them a desolate wilderness. Surely nothing shall escape them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses. Rome is the first army to use war horses. And like swift steeds, so they run. With a noise like chariots over mountaintops, they leap. Like the noise of a flaming fire that devours the stubble, like a strong people set in battle array. Before them the people writhe in pain and all faces are drained of color. They run like mighty men. They climb the wall like men of war. Everyone marches in formation. They do not break ranks. They do not push one another. Everyone marches in his own column. Though they lunge between the weapons, they are not cut down. They run to and fro in the city. They run on the wall. They climb into the houses. They enter at the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and the moon go grow dark, and the stars diminish their brightness. The Lord gives voice before his army, for his camp is very great. For strong is the one who executes his word. Note that. For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. Who can endure it? There's Joel's prophecy about the Roman invasion. That's the Roman army. But he ends up by saying... For strong is the one who executes his word. His word is capitalized. That's God. God, as he did throughout the Old Testament, used a foreign people to subjugate his own disobedient people. And this was the coming judgment for the murder of Jesus. Jerusalem was not going to get by with killing Messiah. So then, then he says, and I'll mention a futurist thing here too. Now learn the parable from the fig tree. 
When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see these things, know that it is near at the door. This is Jesus talking. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. Let me give you a new fresh look at this because there's some misinterpretation of this verse here that gets us off track as well. You guys listen? Just give me a couple more minutes, okay? So Jesus makes a very bold prophecy and says, we're sitting here in 30 AD. By 70, which is a generation, this all has to have happened. And it's going to all have happened because in 70 AD is when Rome totally destroyed Jerusalem. Now, what does it mean when he says here, and this is really fresh, I say to you, this generation. Now, you go ahead and think it through and you tell me how prophecy teachers got Jesus' words when he said this generation and uses the term you 23 times, but, but somehow it's us. I don't know. I honestly don't know, other than it's a, big, it's a demonic ploy to get us off track. We don't know what our target is. We don't understand why we're here. We don't know what we're supposed to be doing. And that's why that Jesus said to me in the cave on Patmos, darkness is not a force. And you are the light of the world. And I mulled that over for four hours. Darkness is not a force. We're giving way too much power to misappropriated events that we're looking forward to as though they've never happened, ignoring the clear evidence that Jesus said it happened in that generation. Therefore, we're not doing our job because we don't know what it is. Are we staying or are we leaving? Is he a dead Jesus on a cross or is he on a throne ordering our events? Now li listen to this. This is really fresh. Look at this term in verse 35 I just read. Heaven and earth will pass away. Now that's where futurists say, well, the world's going to be blown to hell. And Why did the Apostle Paul then close one of his books and say world without end? This world is not going to be destroyed. It's going to be renewed. We're going to rule and reign with Jesus on this planet. This is the decorated planet. This is the place where everything great has happened. That's another distraction for fools. There's aliens and all the worry about... Any demonstration of that is demonic spirits. There, is not, there are not people on another planet that somehow God, and maybe even another God. Foolishness. That's what they talk. Let philosophy classes in universities talk about that crap. The reality is this is the planet Jesus came to. This is the kind of human Jesus was. This is the place he's coming back to. And nobody has the option, including Mr. Putin. I named him earlier. He is an antichrist spirit. Did you know he's hooked at the hip with the head of the Russian Orthodox Church, who is a false prophet, who has prophesied to Putin that he's going to live forever and that he needs to take, and they take it seriously, that he needs to do whatever is necessary to live forever because he's going to rule the world. And it's become really strange. This is actual fact. Putin is attended continually day and night by 60 specialized doctors. 
And I don't know if it's every evening, but often, they actually have, they raise a herd of uh, what we would call reindeer. And when the bucks are in velvet is when they're the most virile and uh, they slaughter one on a regular basis. They let its blood and Putin soaks in a bathtub of blood from these bucks to increase health and longevity. They're doing all kind of strange things because this man is totally convinced he's going to live forever and rule the world. It's one of the reasons I'm not worried about him nuking the world into oblivion is because his ego to rule the world is different than destroying the world. He doesn't want to destroy it. He wants to be worshipped by it. So, there are antichrists. And I'm going to get to us in this day and what we ought to be doing before I finish this up here in a minute, okay? Heaven and earth is a term that I want, you to, I want to introduce to you that's fresh to me. Jesus said heaven and earth will pass away. So then the future say, well, that means that, that that's what that must mean, that the stars and the moon and the sun all go dark. No, what that means is prophetic language all throughout the scripture that world leaders fall. When world leaders fall, the Hebraic way of writing it is, is an extreme uh, analogous way. It's not literal. When they say the sun goes dark and the moon turns to blood and the stars fall from the heavens, it's the same way we use Hollywood stars. The term stars means great world-renowned figures. World figures are going to be brought to justice and fall from the heavens, as it were. Now watch this. When he says heaven and earth will pass away, he's not talking about the, the stars and the planets passing away and this earth passing away. Watch this. This is beautiful. The temple was the epitome of Jewish life for centuries. From the time Solomon built it until they lost it, until Herod rebuilt it, it was the center of Jewish life. But what was the temple? From the tabernacle until it became the temple. This is beautiful. The temple was the process by which a man, who was the Levite high priest, but a man representing all the people, could walk in the front as a human being, wash in the laver, go through the sacerdotal duties of the priesthood, laver of water, seven golden candlesticks, table of showbread, moving toward the most holy place. And if he had done all of this as a man, he raised the, the uh, veil, dropped it behind him into a room with no external light, nothing in the room but one article of furniture, the Ark of the Covenant. Inside the Ark of the Covenant were three things, the broken tablets of the law, Aaron's rod that budded, and the bowl of manna. That was God's evidence against the disobedience of his people. And he kept the lid on it to withhold judgment. So the high priest would come in, pour the blood of an innocent lamb over that lid, and for a year, God would forgive and push their sins forward. So the temple was a place where man and God touched together, and God made a divine covenant to forgive them, and they could come back out, and the people rejoiced. So that was called heaven and earth. In Hebrew, the term for the temple was heaven and earth. I'm going up on Sabbath to heaven and earth. Why would they call it that? Because it's the only place in their world where heaven and earth touched. And Jesus said, man, this gives me chills. When you understand this, Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away. But these words of mine will never pass away.
In other words, you guys are really wowed by the looks and the size and the scope of this temple right now, but all this is going away. It's the end of their time and the age. Now, let me finish with this, and I'm not finished with the subject, but I'm going to quit because, you know, your mind can only receive what your behind can take on that, sitting on that seat. <laughs> this is the reason I want to go to a new place. It's in Jordan. It's on the other side of the Jordan River. It's not in Israel. It's in Jordan. But it's, uh, it, we can get there. I want to go there. Here's what happened. From the prophecies of Jesus, listen, guys, this was basic instruction to his best friends two days before he died. What was he going to do? What was relevant to these guys who were asking these questions and knowing he was about to be led to the cross? What would, why would he take his whole sermon on something totally irrelevant and talk about people 2,000 years in the future? And they were wondering about what are we going to do? You're about to go away. We're really scared. What's coming for us? Listen, based on the teachings of Jesus, this is so thrilling. And the cryptic language of the glorious book of Revelation and the apocalyptic revelation that John wrote, which was instruction to the early church from that period of John wrote this in about, and this is, this is, you're going to see how important John's writing was. John wrote this from Patmos in about 65 AD, five years before it was all fulfilled, but they were right in the middle of it. Nero was in charge, killing them like crazy, acting like a maniac, living as a beast. He was the beast from the sea. All of that, 65 AD, John wrote it. Now watch this. The Christians, the men of Issachar, that example in the Old Testament, the believers in the churches took the words of Jesus and the letter of John's revelation and interpreted it and put it all together and were so clear that when the first rumblings started in Rome, the Christians in Jerusalem. See, you got to understand what we say Jerusalem. Remember now, in the book of Acts, chapter 2, the New Testament church was birthed. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is the high water mark of all history. It doesn't get bigger than that. There's never going to be another son of God die on this planet for our sins and resurrected. If that's not the high water mark, then we're looking at the wrong stuff. So watch this. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is about to happen in this city. But they take his instructions and the book of John 30 years later. Now watch. They had built churches of thousands. The temple system still went on for another 25 or 30 years after Jesus prophesied this. And God gave ample mercies. Did it work? It did. There were churches, believers, speaking in tongues, laying hands on the sick, praying, sending out missionaries to the known world. Matthew died in what is now India. Philip died in what is now Spain. They went all over the world. Paul said in Colossians 1 and 3, the whole world has heard the gospel of the kingdom in his generation. But watch this. This will thrill you. The Christians in their day took the words of Jesus' teaching I've shared with you today, applied it to their own life, listened for the signs, and took the cryptic writings of John in Revelation and the revelation of Jesus, understood who the beast was, knew that there was an army coming from the north, and when the first hints 
of that coming. And they also knew, listen, living, gosh, I got to get finished, but this is a quick comment. Living like the first, te- uh, first, first century church has never happened since. They lived where they made every plan of their lives fit the this generation prophecy. That makes sense then why the Apostle Paul told them in his writing, if you're not currently married, don't get married. If you don't have children, don't start a family now. Well, was that, uh, uh, you can take that, and the Catholic Church doesn't allow these poor priests to marry. That's not what he was talking about. You know why he taught that? Because he knew they only had about five years to go. And he was basically saying, this is not time to start a family. Everything is about to change. This is not the season for marrying and starting a family. You're going to have to run for it. You're going to lose everything you got. But listen to what you've been taught, and here's what they did. Josephus, the great historian that wrote for the Roman army, all of this history, says that the Christians in Jerusalem, following the teachings of Jesus and of John, all escaped the attack from Rome and moved to a city called Pella on the east side of the Jordan, and they survived. The city of Pella became the city of early Christian occupation after the destruction of Jerusalem. They weren't there for it because they knew it was time to get out of Dodge. And Jesus said, if you wait too late, if you're on the housetop, you don't even have time to pack a suitcase. And they believed it. And they all moved their lives, lock, stock, and barrel, to a city called Pella. It was one of the Decapolis cities. There were 10 cities the Romans had built. We go to Betshan. It was one of those. Jesus visited that. The city of Pella is where the Christians went and made a life and survived. And the Romans went to dis- to, to Jerusalem and destroyed it. That was judgment for murdering Jesus. Now, is this uh, replacement theology and God doesn't love Jews anymore? Not at all. It was the filthy, corrupt religious system that killed every prophet God sent him, ultimately his own son, and God said, do you really think you're going to get by with that? So that was, quote, the end of the age and the coming of the new covenant. That's why Daniel's prophecy, and I'll make sense, I'll make an end to this quickly, but I'm going to throw one more log on the fire. That's why Daniel's image prophecy makes sense. Daniel describes an image that saw the kingdoms from the beginning to the end, and he said there will be the Greeks and the Romans and the Medo-Persian Empire, and finally of that last kingdom, the Romans, which it started from the top, And the six kingdoms ended during the Roman Empire's reign, clay mixed with iron. And he says, in, Daniel says, and in those days, when Rome is ruling, in those days, a stone cut without hands will come from the heavens and strike that image on its feet, and it will tumble and fall. And he, gentlemen, the stone cut without hands is a he. It's Jesus. He said, and he will set up his kingdom, and of the increase of his government, there will be no end. What happened in Jesus' lifetime that struck the image of world-dominating kingdoms, and they fell on their face, and the kingdom of God was born and began an increase that has never ended? 
See, you can either take a dim view and think it's worse than it's ever been and you would be vastly wrong. Or you can take a victorious eschatology view and believe that the presence of the kingdom of God in the earth through the church has made the world better than it's ever been. And it's only going to increase. Now, will we have warfare in the spirit? Absolutely. Will we fight? Yeah. Will we go through stuff? We will. There is a real devil. But we win. At every level, we win. Because Jesus wins, and we're with him. And we're going to, we're going to welcome him back. We're going to welcome him back as King of kings and Lord of lords. And so we win. So this is what I want to introduce to you. What are we supposed to be doing? Establishing the kingdom of God. You say, how in the world, Mike, could you say the world is better? I could give you a list. I'll just reel off three or four. Did you know the world had no orchestral organized music before Christianity? Did you know the world had no teaching universities before Christianity? Did you know that there were no hospitals for you to go to when you were sick before Christianity? Christianity established hospitals. Did you know in the days of Jesus, 40% of the world's population lived as slaves? And because of Christianity, slavery has ended. It's illegal everywhere now. That's because of the influence of the kingdom of God. Did you know before Christianity, there was no cure for, a, for any disease? There was no understanding of germs. There was, there was no uh, hygienic understanding. There was no cures for disease. There were no, there were no organized doctors. In Jesus' day, they called them leeches, not just because they charged a lot, but because the best treatment they had was to stick leeches all over you and suck your blood out and hope you got better. As late as George Washington, they were still doing that. George Washington died of a lack of blood. He had pneumonia, but they kept bleeding him. They thought if he could just get rid of this bad blood, he'll be better. Stand with me if you would. S say this in your spirit and with your mouth, victorious eschatology. We win. Why would we invest in a world that's going to all be destroyed? We invest in a world because we're building something glorious. Is everything in the past? No, a lot of things I've taught to you today, I believe, are in the past. Let me tell you, gentlemen, what, what is not in the past. The parousia is the Greek word, the second coming of Jesus, which I translate as the final appearing because when he comes, he's taken over. And with that, three great things happen that have not happened yet. The general resurrection of the dead, as far as I know, no one but Jesus has been resurrected from the dead. There were others Jesus raised from the dead like Lazarus, but he died later of old age. That was not resurrection. Jesus is the only prototype of the resurrected body that there ever has been. The general resurrection is going to see all the dead. The sea gives up its dead. All of those who've ever lived are going to be resurrected, and then there is a judgment. And everyone will be judged about what they did with Jesus. And the judgment for us is not going to be whether we're saved or lost, but a judgment of rewards. And men, some of you in this room that know how to pray, get on your face, stand strong, protect your family, provide, love God, be faithful. I got a feeling, and I'm not putting down anybody in ministry, but I just got this feeling, you know, we coined a phrase in the last 10 years, celebrity pastors. What in the world is that? Celebrity pastors. 
I got a feeling that that judgment of rewards, that's what it is. It's not saved or lost judgment. It's a judgment of rewards. And I got a feeling that I got single moms in my church that are going to get more reward than a celebrity pastor. He already got his. He already got his. But the Bible says that that great judgment in the book of Revelation, John wrote this, there will be books. He says first, plural, there will be books opened. Now I want you to envision you're having your moment before God. It's your moment for judgment. And books are opened. In my opinion, those books are the book, books of every thought, deed, and act in your life. It's all recorded. That's why he says, it's appointed unto man once to die, and after this, the judgment. That term judgment there is the Greek word, you'll recognize this, forensia, is where we get the word forensic. Forensic shows cell because of the detail of DNA and hair follicles and all that. Why is it used here? Because God's going to look at your life with a forensic microscope, not reasons for you to be lost, but reasons for him to save you. His grace covers you because I see it here. You believed in me. You accepted me. You received me. You made some mistakes in your life, but that's not what causes you to be lost. We're all flesh. I'm not justifying bad behavior. But God is going to look through the forensic evidence. And then the Bible says the books are open. Then he closes those, and then the book is opened to see if your name is written in the book of life. And then we move into eternity and the kingdom of God with ultimate victory and Jesus as ruler of the universe. Not putting anybody down, forget the sinking politics of it, but have we ever been in a more pitiful lack for leadership? Not just in our nation, in the nations of the world, absolutely pitiful leadership. There, there are smarter people. Where do these people come from? Well, I'll talk about that next time. I have an idea where they're bred and where they're born and where they come from. But listen, this is what's, this is what's going to happen. I just described to you the greatest events the world's ever seen other than the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is the general resurrection of the dead, the judgment of all men, and the rule and reign of Christ. I hope I've given you some stuff today to think about because here's what I want to do. Honestly, Pastor Buck, what I wanted, what I wanted to try to help do, if I could add any, anything to what you're doing, because I believe in you so much, and I believe in the zeal that you have for, for the world and for building the house of God. I, I am so tired of mistaken prophecy disemboweling the message of the kingdom. It's like, because anybody with two P's for a brain has to be standing there saying, okay, how do we do this? We don't have any future because we're leaving any minute. And all this is still to come, and yet we're supposed to build something. I don't understand what we're doing that for. But if you, if you look into this carefully, this will give you a reason for living, for thriving, for being victorious, for pushing back darkness, for changing cities. Because you are the light. What that means is wherever God calls you, whether you walk in a car dealership or the White House, you bring light. And you don't have to fight darkness. Darkness cannot stay in the presence of light. 
That's why you can walk into a room and you'll feel a spirit of irritation. And there wasn't anything negative going on until you got there. Because you stir up that darkness in people. They don't even know. Sometimes I'll walk in a place and I'll see people start slipping out the side door. Darkness can't abide the light. Can't stay. Father, I pray in Jesus' name that the word that we've shared be only the words of Jesus and your will. Any words, Lord, that were in any way imposed by my own opinions or ego, please strike those from the memory of every man in this place. But please, Lord, let them indelibly remember the words of Jesus and let it change their life and their heart. And let them become students of this. Let them read the book of Matthew. Let them read the book of Revelation with new understanding that it was a first century book written to first century Christians who believed it and saved their lives for it. And now we can apply it in a thousand ways to the victory of our own life. But we know who we are. We know where we're going. We know it might take some time, but we got time because God's in charge and we're going to win. And I got news for you guys. This game doesn't end in four quarters. This game doesn't end till we win. The time clock we're on is God's time clock. And let me ask you a question. Do you believe we have enough time to do the will of God and what he's given us to do? Why would he give us to do it? Why would he put that in your heart? We have no time. Sorry, he said, just teasing. I thought maybe I'd give you a vision for doing all this, but I was just kidding. You're leaving any minute. Forget your dreams and visions. Don't marry, don't have kids, don't build a business. Don't bring light to darkness. Just hang out. Sit on your butt. Live in confusion. Go to church when you feel like it. Worship a dead Jesus. That's not my God. My God's ruling today from the throne in heaven. Making judgments on your behalf. Here's one of the things he's saying for a bunch of you guys. From the throne, he's saying, Father, all that stuff they had to leave at home that they could really worry about, they came here to give you a weekend. Fix that while they're gone. Fix that while they're gone. They're going to come home to a new home, new marriage, new kids. Come on, give the Lord a shout.